In 2018, a group of young soccer players explored the Tom Luang Cave in Thailand when a heavy rains flooded it and trapped them inside this cave. Despite a massive search and rescue effort, the team was not able to be found for over a week. Their survival was slim. The rescue mission became quite dangerous as the waters flooded the cave and levels grew higher and higher. Even a former Thai Navy SEAL named Suman Kunin passed away during the mission as he did not receive the proper oxygen that was needed in the cave. But this tragedy rang an emergency bell across the globe. A group of international professional cave divers assembled together to rescue these boys. They navigated through the tough terrains of narrow flooded passageways and waded through the treacherous currents with low visibility and darkness. Finally, on day 18 of this intense mission, the boys were found trapped in the depths of this cave, alive, hungry, and scared. These cave divers brought them food and supplies until every one of these boys were guided out of these narrow flooded passageways. And the rescue mission was amazingly extensive. We see that this rescue mission was brought about by many different people. They were brought about by first responders, by different organizations, by military personnel that spanned the countries of Thailand, China, Australia, France, Japan, and even the US. But there were two men in particular who were instrumental in, in planning this search and rescue mission. Cave diving enthusi enthusiast Rick Stanton and John Vellanthan helped plan the search and rescue mission. And they were one of the first divers to dive in to save these boys as well. Rick and John are an example of bravery that shines across the globe, not only as they plan the mission, but bravely and heroically entered the mission as well. In similar fashion, as we will see in our passage today, in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 18, the rescue of Christ, we will see this as our main point. Jesus is the rescue light that enters the darkness to save us from darkness. Jesus is the rescue light that enters our darkness to save us from darkness, and we will see this in two different stages. First, we will see the rescue light incarnation, as we see in verses 14 through 18. And secondly, we will see the response of the people to that light in verses 9 through 13. But we, before we get into those things, let me just lay the groundwork by looking at verse 6. At the witness of the light, it says here in, in verse 6, There was a man sent from, sent from God whose name was John. And this is John the Baptist, not to be confused with the writer John. In verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify of about the light. You see, even John the Baptist recognized who he was. We see in verse 15, it talks about him and says, 
John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one whom I said, The one who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. In um, Aaron's sermons that we were listening to, we understand that John was actually born before Jesus, but here in this passage, John attested the fact that Jesus existed before him. So John came to bear witness of the light. He was not here to point to himself, but to the light incarnate who existed before him and is more, more significant than he. With this, back, with this in the background, let us move on to understand what this concept of incarnate light means. The word incarnation, we don't throw that word around a lot, but it comes from the Latin word incarnatio, which means embodiment or a taking on of flesh. Scripture refers to Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who, beca who became flesh and took human form while also being fully God. Let me explain the doctrine of incarnation by looking at verse 14 in three different phrases. First, we see that God is in the flesh. God is in the flesh. It is his embodiment of God being embodied, and it is God in human flesh. And it is interesting that that is so because when we think about all the different stories that are written, and I love watching different movies, we watch, watch different superhero stories, it's interesting that the characters move on from being ordinary to taking on more extraordinary abilities and being pulled away and set apart from being an ordinary person. But in Jesus' story, Jesus' story is different because Jesus couldn't become any more extraordinary. As we see in uh, the sermon last week, Jesus is God. You see that, that he is the word, the eternal, the creator, and the sustainer and the rescuer. The thing that makes this story extra, extraordinary is that Jesus becomes ordinary. Verse 14 says, The Word became flesh. For this search and rescue mission to happen, Jesus needed to become a human like one of us. God, the all-powerful and all-knowing one, willingly chose to become human and experience all the types of emotions and limitations that we experience. Jesus took on this human form so that we could fully understand, so that he could fully understand and relate with our human experiences, the grief of the emotions of losing a loved one, feeling hunger for food, thirst for drink, and even pain, being uh, the pain of being betrayed by someone that you loved. Ultimately, Jesus took on this human form to become the sacrifice that was needed to take away our sins. In the Old Testament, we see that there are many animal sacrifices that are given, but these were only temporary. They had to go on over and over 
and over again. But because Jesus, the God-man, became human, he was able to settle the sacrifice once and for all. Jesus, this God-man, died in our place and fully pays the penalty for our sin on the cross. As 100% man, he became this perfect representative for us. Yet, as 100% God, he took on the eternal penalty for our sin on himself. A penalty that we could not take on ourselves and live. I love the way that Valley and the Vision puts it together. One of their poems talks about this by saying, There thy infinite attributes were magnified, and infinite atonement was made. There infinite punishment was due, and infinite punishment was endured. Christ was all anguish that I might be all joy, cast off that I might be brought in, trodden down as an enemy that I might be welcomed as a friend, surrendered, sur surrendered to hell's worst that I might attain heaven's best, stripped that I might be clothed, wounded that I might be healed, a thirst that I might drink, tormented that I might be comforted, made ashamed that I might inherit glory, Enter darkness that I might have eternal life. My Savior wept all the tears that I might have mine wiped away. Groaned that I might have endless song. Endured all pain that I might have unfading health. Bore a thorny crown that I might have a glory diadem. Bowed his head down low that I might have my head lifted high. Experience reproach that I might receive welcome. Close his eyes in death that I may gaze on unclouded brightness. Expired that I might live forever. Having understood the incarnation of Jesus as a means of God becoming flesh, we must also realize that the incarnation means that God's glory now dwells with, with us. We see in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This concept of dwelling with us comes from the Greek word skinao, which means to pitch one's tent or to tabernacle. So if I were to say this with, in, in that phraseology, I would say that this verse is the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. Having understood this concept of dwelling with us, tabernacling with us, it is worth mentioning at least two different Old Testament passages. Exodus 33, when the children of Israel are rescued from the bondage of Egypt and they are now on the road uh, in the wilderness to the promised land, there is a point where he becomes presumptuous, in a sense, where he asks to see the full weight and glory of God. And Moses didn't really understand what he was asking for because no one could see the face of God and live. To see God's pure and holy and, and, and powerful and transcendent glory would leave one, uh, a mortal, dead in their tracks. But God made an exception for Moses. 
he said to Moses, this is what I'll do for you. I'll, I'll hide you in the cleft of this rock. And when I pass by, you will see my back and you will see the remnants of my glory. There are other parts of scripture where it says when he, when he came down from the mountain, his face shone like the sun. We also see in Exodus 40, as this tabernacle, half of the book is about the, this tabernacle being built. And after months and months, and maybe even up to a year of the instruction of the temple and the building of this temple, this is what it says in its last passage. Exodus 40, verses 34 says, The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. We see that there is commentary of this as Moses preaches later in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 says, as he's preaching, he says to them, This is what you requested from the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let us not continue to hear the voice of the Lord our God or see this great fire any longer so we will not die. The children of Israel were terrified at the full weight of God's glory, his purity, his undefiled glory. Even the prophet Moses couldn't handle this. It is different for us. As we see that God makes it an exception for us in John chapter 1 to verse 14, where it says the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the Father. Unlike Moses, who only saw the remnants of his backside and saw his glory from a glimpse, Jesus, the God-man, tabernacles with us. And we look at him and we live. We see this concept of, of Jesus and the radiance of this glory in different passages. We see in Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Hebrews 1.3 says, The sun is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact expression of his nature. We see here in our own passage, in John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's right hand, he has revealed him. This word revealed uh, is, the, is the Greek word that we get our word, our English word, exegesis. And if, I don't know if you guys hear that word a lot, but it's basically the science of drawing out the meaning out of a text in order to explain or interpret it. In this sense, Jesus becomes the exegesis of God as he makes known the glory of God to his people in human flesh. The Israelites had to work hard for the glory and presence of God. 
in the new covenant, Jesus, the God-man, comes and brings his glory down from heaven. We can see this glory in the face of Christ. We can see him. We can touch him. We could personally interact with him and still live. We also understand that the incarnation is not only the embodiment or this glory dwelling, but we also realize that the incarnation is a divine grace given to humanity. It says in verse 14 that in his glory we saw that it was full of grace and truth. Now, grace and truth are not just random attributes that John was throwing to the glory of God and his incarnation. It actually corresponds with words that we have even read today. In the Old Testament concept of God's steadfast love, his faithfulness, and his truth. Exodus 34, after Moses sees the remnants of God's glory in the cleft of the rock, he breaks out in song. He says this, Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Moses was a prophet of God. He was the only person at that particular point of time in redemptive history who was able to see God. That was a gracious act from God. But in the New, new Covenant, Jesus makes himself known, not just to religious people, not to just the leaders, but to ordinary people like you and me. In addition to this grace being evident in his revelation of his glory, we also see the grace that we receive in the overabundance of his presence. It says in verse 17, Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This passage reminds us that the law that was given to Moses was a grace from God. To use architectural language, it is as if the law of Moses then becomes the scaffolding that raises up a building, the framework, the foundation stone upon which the grace of Jesus was built. Some Christians today, and actually some pastors, say that we should untether ourselves from the Old Testament. However, to untether ourselves from the law of Moses is to untether ourselves from a grace of God. The Old Testament that we read as we make our uh, New Testament resolutions to read through the Bible and get through the Old Testament to get to the New Testament, we must realize that that is a grace from God. And Jesus is the culmination of that grace as he brings grace upon grace. So in summary, Jesus took on the form 
of, of a human f to fully understand and relate with our human experiences and become the perfect sacrifice. Secondly, through this incarnation, the glory now dwells or tabernacles with humanity. And thirdly, the incarnation of the Son shows the divine grace that was built on the grace of the law of Moses. Last point. Now that we have seen this incarnate light and how, in a sense, just as the men in our story put on their scuba gear and plunged into the deep darkness, Jesus took on human form as God and plunged into our darkness to save us from our dark darkness. But how do the people respond? We see two different responses, one in verse 9 and the other in and and the other in verse 11. So let's look at the first response. In verse 9 it says, "The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him." This was a very sad day. The creator, God, who created the world, laid its foundation, now enters the story. And the people that he created and the people that he has chosen to become a nation, his people reject him as their, as their rightful king. They reject his miracles. They reject his teaching. And ultimately, this rejection led to the betrayal of Jesus dying on a cross. Unfortunately, these rejections are also quite prevalent in our world today. There is a movement out there that is called the Exvangelical or Deconversion Movement. It's a growing phenomenon, as you, would, you can see on YouTube, on, on TikTok, and on other different platforms of people talking about their renunciation in their faith in God and the authority of Scripture. It's, it gains more traction because it's on these social media, media platforms. And I've, I've watched numerous different YouTube videos of people who used to be Christians who now are no longer Christians. It's kind of weird how, how they talk about it. It's almost like they're giving a testimony of their rebirthing or their unborn againing story. They talk about the unhealthiness of their Christian background and how it was detrimental to their health, both spiritually and mentally. They talk about the feeling of how freeing it is to get away from those shackles, to take on a new identity and belonging. The Apostle Paul talks about this type of phenomenon as it says in 2 Corinthians 2.16, to, to some who hear the, the message of the gospel, it is aroma of death leading to death, but to others, an aroma of life leading to life. This verse implies that two people are going to hear the gospel differently. One, as an aroma to death, as something that is constrictive and keeps them from what true life is, and the other that embraces it as 
their life. What happens when people reject this light? I think when we reject light, it is also pictured in our own framework of how God has made us in our own DNA. As we look at uh, around us and as we experience harsh winters and dark darkness that uh, covers our area a lot quicker than, than most places, we're reminded that we are, that are our need of, of natural light. Some people, like me, when I don't get natural light, I develop a disorder called SADS, which is a seasonal affective disorder. It is when the chemicals in your body, because you're not receiving the light, it changes your, the, the imbalances your brain, and you get less melatonin and serotonin levels that are needed for you to function properly. It leads to mood swings, low energy, and also sleep deprivation. Lack of natural light also leads to um, the, the lack of vitamin D. And I remember taking a blood test and they say, them saying, you, you have like 10% of the vitamin D in your body that you need. And when I finally received that, that uh, vitamin, it just made such a difference on my overall well-being. Just like our body needs natural light and there are ways to fight SADS, in, in dealing with it, we need to be proactive in those measures. In the same way, we must understand the brevity or the gravity of rejecting the light of Christ. This rescue light may seem like death to some or pulling away or restriction from what people believe is life. But Jesus warns those who do not receive this rescue light. John chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus preaches and he says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my sayings says, or the, the one who rejects me and doesn't receive my sayings has this as his judge. The word I, I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So, if we do not receive the words of Christ as life, and if we do not receive this rescue light, we will obtain judgment and death. But before we go on and think about how other people have rejected this life and light, we must also look inwardly as well to how we, in our subtle ways, have rejected Christ. You see, we all know Scripture in this room, we know the heart of God and the heart of the matter of the will of God in many different things. Yet, we make decisions based on our own personal desires rather than following the God, God's inspired word. We justify our sinful behaviors by rationalizing them away. We, we ignore and dismiss parts of the scripture that we deem uncomfortable and inconvenient. We trust in our own abilities rather than relying on God's wisdom and power. We prioritize our comforts, our preferences, our feelings over obeying God's word. 
as believers, we must be reminded of those subtle ways in which we reject the light. And as we come to the table, let us repent and, from our sin and turn back to the rescue light. But there is hope. And I want you to see this hope as we look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. If you accept Jesus as your rescuer today, or if you are believing in him as your savior, he is your life and light. He will save you. And he has brought you into the family through adoption. The right of passage to adoption into the family of God is through belief. Not through natural birth or the conjuring up of our own will. Not through our own willpower, but through belief, receiving Jesus. And when we become the children of the light, as we are adopted into this new family, Jesus not only brings us into his family, but he, he indwells in us. And he is doing a work in the darkness in our lives. And just like we would invite a person into our home, and if that person was so gracious to clean our house, Jesus comes into our lives and pushes the gospel into every aspect of of our hearts. So where there was once darkness, there is now light because of Christ. As I conclude this sermon, I want to leave you with a story. I want you to ask yourselves, which character are you in this story? There is a table overflowing with milk and honey, a bountiful feast, a place of rest for weary souls, at the end of the table sits King Jesus, the, benevol the benevolent King of light. He has prepared a table before you. And although you were his enemy and rejected him, he accepts you with arms wide open. He invites more and more guests to come. He says, come and eat and, and be a part of my banquet. All who hunger, all who thirst, all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. But some travelers disdain the light. They would rather starve than enter and receive this gracious host invitation. Their faces are weary, their bodies are hungry, their souls in despair as they reject the king of light. Yet there are some, some who enter this banquet with thankful hearts, with radiant faces, as their souls are nourished by the king of light as they receive this banquet feast. Will you come? Jesus invite, invites you to the banquet. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for sending your son to indwell, to bring a glory that was once trapped in a in a box, Lord, where only the holiest of holy uh, of people could enter this place. But Jesus, we thank you that you sent your son 
who is God, to become like one of us. And how he joined the ordinary. He joined our darkness to save us from our darkness. Jesus, we ask that you would allow your spirit to continue to preach this sermon to our hearts, Lord, as we sing and as we receive the elements through your table. In Christ, I pray. Amen.